I'm Dan Smolin. I built a successful executive career in marketing and communications before becoming a top headhunter and founding my own executive search firm. Now get this. Every day, mainstream media runs stories in which old school bosses and thought leaders frame your work and workplace issues in ways that are often divisive and unmeaningful. And that's just crazy. The time has come for you to answer the question, what's your work fit so that your work and career fit who you are, how you want to live, and what you want your lasting contributions to be? What's your work fit? It answers your questions and tackles the issues that keep you up at night about advancing your career in this time of workplace revolution. So let's get started. Hey, good day, everyone across the United States and Canada and around the world. So good to see you. Before we get started, I want to just thank our sponsors, Hudson Davis Companies. Um, I am so honored to have them on board. Wonderful people. And what I really like about them is they are the future of marketing services, as I understand it. Small, agile companies with best of breed services and capabilities. Um, I encourage you to reach out to them at Hudson Davis uh, creative.com or Hudson Davis communications.com. They have two URLs. So that's me on my soapbox. Um, and one other thing, if you submit a future question to this show and we accept it, I will send you this embroidered. What's your work fit baseball cap made in America um, by really great people. Um, so think about that. And if you have an idea for a future show, easiest way to reach me is you can message me on LinkedIn or you could pop me an email at dan at dansmolin.com. Okay, let's get to it. I am happy to introduce to you today, Justin Nuppe. Justin is a... Um, neuroresiliency and leadership coach. What is neuroresiliency for the uneducated Justin Nape? Uh, I kept asking the question, what, uh, what's going to move the needle the most within leadership? And it tends to be um, all the research comes back to working memory, the neurological perspective and neural patterning of how we perceive stress. And so neuroresilience is literally just the answer to that. How do we make you more resistant by focusing on the neurological pathways? So neuroresiliency was born. That's a great tee up for our question of the day, um, which is posed by someone who uh, has asked that we call her Dina. She has created an alias. I think it's understandable given some of the, um, the tensions and stressors that happen in uh, the workplace today. And here she goes. She says, I am a business development executive at an A-round funded tech startup. So A-round, generally speaking, has gotten their first infusion of VC. My company's founder recruited me in from an established tech brand. And in the 18 months that I've been here, I've met and exceeded all of his pre-sales and sales targets. 
And despite the economy right now, which isn't too friendly to tech, uh, Dina has helped fill the pipeline and a major prospect converted to sale in first quarter. Congratulations, Dina. Uh, and yet she feels disrespected and disappointed. The founder, you're going to love this, Justin. The founder ignores my personal successes and dismisses my suggestions, but jumps when the VC squawks. And often it's the VCs and I are saying the same thing. But when I speak up, his response to me is the one calling. I'm the one calling the shots and that I need to follow his lead. And she says, exasperated. I mean, I've been doing that, but I am the one facing the clients and the prospect, not him. So where's the support? And she asks you, why doesn't my company's founder respect me? So after that, that narrative from Dina, thank you so much. Justin, why doesn't her company founder respect her? <laughs> this is a great question. And uh, it's one that I actually find uh, quite a lot when working with my clients as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so first to celebrate Dana for actually coming through and asking a question like this is a big deal, first and mm -hmm. foremost, and how much this is going to serve a lot of people listening and be like, hey, that's, that's also me. Um, so that's a big deal. So thank you, Dana. And then um, Dina. 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 Sorry, yeah. I thought I heard Dana. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's the first thing to say, first and foremost, is acknowledgement of that. The second thing is um, there are multiple perspectives that create a situation like this. So one of them is the if we look at uh, Dina, first and foremost, right, what is going on here with regard to, um, you know, expectations? How do I expect? And then, you know, then we can ask the same thing of the founder, you know, what's going on there with their style. So all of this comes together in terms of how do humans organize themselves and specifically organize themselves within the structure of a company. So I would, I would say that the place that I would start is going to be uh, the resistance, what we call in coaching triggers. Like what is ex exactly the thing that's creating the frustration? And within the owner, the, the founder, I would... I would propose already just from the, the sounds of it, but I would want to go deeper with this. It sounds like the owner is triggered by the success of Dina. And ah, there might be a threat in there, you know, just because someone is a founder or a CEO of like a big company. Um, it doesn't mean that they're holistically a well-balanced human being. It means they've got ambition and they've got drive and skill work there, but not necessarily a lot of internal knowledge of, what frustrates them, how to deal with frustration in real time as well. And so you're probably not dealing with the founder at their age. You're probably dealing with the founder at the age of like 13, 14 in terms of neurological maturity. Ah, perfect send up for my graphic. <laughs> Why doesn't the company's founder respect me? Now, I don't know, Dina. She reached out to me in an alias. Uh, it's not her name. Uh, and she said, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm too invested in this company, but... Um, what she said to me um, in other comments was, this is a bro culture and uh, I'm a woman. It's hard enough being a woman in a startup and also being a woman who's crushing her deliverables. But this this is a thing. And, you know, I feel like I've got to have eyes on the back of my head. I, I hear this a lot, Justin. What do you what do you think of that? I think. You know, there's absolutely some merit to it. And likewise, it, it warrants some investigation. Like, 
the way that we frame things in our minds might not be the actual reality. And we need to mm-hmm. almost reality test. Like, is it a woman thing versus a bro culture? Or is it just the fact that, um, let's say the company founder finds it easier to relate to men. And so it's just the idea of, well, if we go ahead and try to cultivate communication and cultivate a little bit more of a relationship or a connection, that that could actually change around. And what could that mean to uh, Dina's internal um, internal skill work, the soft skills of developing relationships as well in overcoming those struggles? So, mm. you know, that's a best case scenario of like, okay, cool, it's not what I think it is, but it very well could be. And that's also like a cultural condition thing of um, men know how to understand other men typically. I'm going to get into the bro culture aspect of it um, Go for it. with a, with a, with a caveat only in the sense that I, I really don't like the term because I think it creates a cartoon aspect. And you said something quite meaningful to me, and that is men and women can be wired differently. Mm. How, how we, how we relate to others, our threat mechanisms are different. Um, I find that women uh, in startup culture tend to be more ambidextrous, <laughs> tend to be more multifaceted. And it maybe it's because they often work at a disadvantage. So they have more, more tools in their toolbox to be successful uh, on par with men. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Um, I, would, I, would, I would actually argue against that and say mm-hmm. that women exceed men in terms of a lot of skill work and a lot of education as well. And um, a lot of the time, you know, men need to deal with a sense of the feelings of vulnerability and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this a threat, essentially, where um, it's, it's quite threatening to have um, anyone, not just a woman, but anyone who is, as you say, ambidextrous or very high skilled. And so perhaps that that's also something that gets the back up against the wall. It's more of a, a question on the receiving end of how comfortable are you in your own skin? And that's usually what pushes leaders as well is they feel undervalued or undermined or, uh, you know, that they have to make a show of their strength. Right. And, and so I, I would put particularly, I would put this more on leadership in, in any sense, you know, that it's, it's connected together with um, how comfortable are they within their own skin. I want to tee up another frame of this. And it's one I think a lot of our viewers will relate to. And that's the Elizabeth Holmes uh, Theranos model, which is, um, uh, is this a unicorn? Is this person a genius? Do they walk <laughs> on water? Absolutely. Um, I think, I think a lot of people are familiar with the story, especially given the fact that it had some theatrical release in uh, a TV show, I think, on Hulu earlier this year. And people got to see how this thing completely took on a life of its own. Um, th- th- there is a certain element of disrespect in a company like this with a charismatic, almost messianic leader. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in these kinds of cultures that that causes people who have signed on to work, especially in the early stages, uh, gets them full of suffering and misunderstanding. 
There, you know, it's so interesting, Dan, there's so many things that go on. And one of the things that we need to be aware of is how many, how many biases the mind has, especially towards social behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's one called diffusion of responsibility. If you're in a room and you smell smoke, straight away, if you're alone, you're going to stand up, you're going to go and investigate, you're going to do something. If there are three people in the room, you won't do that. Your behavior will be delayed because you'll be looking at the others to see who's going to take charge, who's going to take the lead, who's going to start the first action. So diffusion of responsibility is a huge social bias as well that we need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. And so in companies like this, you see that a lot where you're like, well, are we going in the right? Well, I'm sure we must be because someone else is going to take charge. Someone else is going to. And so there is a diffusion of responsibility and that's okay. That's a very natural thing. So an example of like Theranos is where that can go wrong. But there's other aspects too. And one of the biggest things, total quality management is one model of management and leadership that I love. And one of the biggest things that they talk about is transparency. Having transparency within a company, having the safety within a company to be able to challenge people and say, I don't agree and state your case without people getting invested in egos or in the fight or whatever's got to be said. And when you've got someone who's incredibly charismatic, usually they will not allow you to, to challenge. Or number two is they'll convince you without evidence that what they're doing is right. And it's very convincing. And that social pressure to accept that, especially if you're in groups and you can see other people accepting it, is incredible. There was great work done on, on, on like social biases called the, um, the standing ovation model which oh. says that any, any show can get a standing ovation mm-hmm. provided a couple of things are there. Number one is that if you don't like the show particularly, it was okay, but everyone around you is standing up, you're more likely to stand up and give it a standing ovation as well, right? Because there's this herd mentality that's mm-hmm. pulling you up. And it's only if you absolutely negatively review this show, like you hate it, that you want your opinion to be known that you object to this, that you would sit down. And it's, it's basically a show needs to be like a four out of 10 or lower for you to hit that. So the fact that you don't actively object, but you see people around you standing up, you're likely to stand up as well and give it a standing ovation. And for them to do that, they need a position. I think it's 5% of the total audience in certain places to, to be able to pull a standing ovation out of everyone in that audience. Wow. Only 5%. It's something like that. Yeah, it's, it's real, like I'm not too sure about the exact numbers, but just to examine that point of how easily swayed we are socially and socially speaking to charisma as well, that there only needs to be a small number of people that absolutely buy into this for us to then go along because we're like, well, everybody's doing this. And so let me check my reality against everyone. Well, there's got to be something here. So it's a bias, unfortunately, that we need to kind of work around and investigate and explore how are we making assumptions right now? What could we do so that we don't necessarily make mistakes? So <clears throat> I think in pre-interview, I uh, told you I spent 20 years as a headhunter. I was a recruiter, national recruiter, worked on big projects, <clears throat> um, a lot of senior level folk, but also a lot of individual contributors. And there was one year where Many years ago, it was startup year. Almost every placement I made was in startup land. And um, it was off to the races. And for for a lot of our recruits, 
it was that 5% are standing and we're all clapping now. <clears throat> but there was also a hurry up element, uh, a fear of missing out, a FOMO element as well. What do you mean you're going to go to that other company? Don't you want to be for a startup? You're going to be on the ground floor, blah, 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 is what the yeah. client would say to uh, the people we sent over. Mm. And and another thing that often happened in that framing, Justin, was something I call one big family. We are one big family. <laughs> okay, here's the joke. If uh, I think most of the world is watching Succession right now. This is not a family you want to be a part of necessarily. <laughs> but um, the the one big family thing should really be a red flag because that the, that often tells the person who's looking at the job <laughs> don't don't consider don't consider what that means and don't be skeptical you know again <laughs> you're, the fear of missing out element we're one big family we'll take care of you mm. and let's talk about that um is there attempt is there a temptation among leaders to sort of sweet talk uh, high flying talent they want to bring in with that kind of thing? Or are there other, are there other placaters, if you will, <laughs> other sweeteners, other, other behavioral psyops that people do to bring 100%. in high flyers? Oh, yeah, yeah. I would, I would look at it from two categories and say there's two types of leaders. There are mm -hmm. leaders who have got the developed skills. Either they've naturally got these traits or they've developed them over time. And then there are leaders who don't have these traits, but instead they live in a, a, a version in their head, a perception of what a leader should be in their minds that they've built up. And working with either groups of these leaders, you know, you see this all the time where mm -hmm. they, will, um, they will try and inspire people and, and get you behind the vision. Um, and that's, that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of companies that are mission-orientated or values-orientated actually have got a better work culture fit. But for them to stay there, the mission-orientated people usually achieve their mission. And then mm -hmm. what? What do you do once you've achieved your mission? So it actually, it's better for the company to never achieve the mission and keep people there who are passionate about achieving that goal. So, so, so in a practical sense, what does that mean? The mission might be uh, 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 whatever got them to the A round? Um, let's say that the mission, let's, let's say that you come up with a technology that can cure cancer. Mm. Right. And you get people behind you who are invested in curing cancer, who, mm. you know, siblings of, uh, you know, family members, et cetera, have suffered from it, et cetera. Um, it's in this company's interest when they cure cancer, there's no more business for the company. And so it's in their interest to not necessarily cure the, the cancer or solve the problem or achieve mm. the mission, because then the company makes itself redundant. Right. And, and so you have to play these roles. It's kind of like a teacher dependency on, you know, the student has dependency on the teacher, but a good teacher makes themselves redundant, whereas a bad teacher makes themselves, um, you know, someone that the student constantly has to lean on because it's now, you know, an income for them. So we've got a conflict of interest with mission-based businesses. So determining whether your business is mission-based is very important and asking yourself that question, how invested are they in maintaining the problem and maybe drip feeding small parts of the solution? So that's a big deal. But the other one is values-based businesses. And you don't see a lot of these when they scale 
And unfortunately, when they scale, you start to lose humanity if you're not careful because you start to put bureaucracy and layers of people and tape between decision makers and your regular Joes working in the um, in the business. I want, and so I want, you, yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about that a bit, but I want to get to a question from Stuart sure. Katz who asks, how can high performers in an organization position themselves as helpful in assisting the founder, CEO, somebody in the C-suite in, in reaching their goals versus some type of internal competitor. Mm -hmm. So what I get from that is it's almost like the talent have to be emotionally intelligent enough to say, I'll do my job, but it's really not about my ego. It, it, you know, I, I can I can be agile enough to try to get into that person's head a bit. Mm -hmm. At least understand where they're trying to be. So we, like you said in the beginning of the show, you know, reach some sort of common, common understanding. Mm -hmm. what are your, what's your take on Stuart's question? Um, one word, which is uh, communication. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the amount of people that I deal with on a regular basis who ask, how can I do this? How can I do this? There must be multiple conversations to communicate and establish trust. You know, and trust is literally a repetition of something so that people expect it from you in future. You establish it through action behavior statements as well. And so I would say that if you're worried about being uh, perceived as some kind of threat to the company versus mm -hmm. being helpful to the company, mm -hmm. it's important that there are statements and there, there are conversations saying, I'm really invested in this company. I connect with this company. I see myself in this company for a very long time. And I, I am a high performer and I want to do more for this company. And having that dialogue and the conversation on a regular basis where you can touch base with the CEO or the founder and say like, okay, cool. So what would you perceive as being incredibly helpful right now, assisting you reaching your goals? And they, they say, well, I think um, this is my goal at the moment, but I don't see how you could help me with that. And then it starts to become a conversation where the person can then say, okay, well, you know what? I could probably assist so-and-so in doing the, these actions and, and start spitballing ideas. And it doesn't need to happen as big segments. It's just small investments of time where eventually the founder, the CEO starts seeing you as an asset rather than a threat. And it's, it's communication. You know, you said the onus really should be on the leadership and mm -hmm. that makes perfect sense. But as you also said, many of them are, are basically, seventh graders in <laughs> yeah. big boy bodies and, you know, in, in, in adult bodies. Um, my wife teaches seventh graders. That is a scary proposition. They are very impulse driven. Mm -hmm. So Dina cared enough to tee up this question to me a few months back and I want to help her out. And I get the sense, I get a lot of frustration from her. I get the sense that she just doesn't know how to break the ice with this dude, how to how to find a a a place that is safe for them both, where mm -hmm. she can be honest about what she's trying to do for him. And in the same token, not threaten him, but empower him and let him feel that way. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of emotional intelligence. Do you have any first steps for her maybe that she could take? One hundred percent. A friend of mine has a phrase, which is, what's the most beautiful question? And, and I think that that is one of the most important things here is what question could uh, Dina ask where it is empowering for them, but it also sets the stage of communicating the values. 
So again, uh, you know, in this case, the founder should be responsible. The leaders in the group are people, there's an obligation that you're responsible for the other members within the group, in the team, in the, mm -hmm. the tribe, so to speak. Right. But if the leader is just someone who naturally wants, they're ambitious or they like influence or whatever the case may be, and they are a seventh grader, you know, basically in control of a lot of lives and money and that kind of thing, it, the onus is on, um, you know, the individual. So we've got to get to that place. Number one is we need to make sure that we're not feeling like we're victimized in any particular way. Number two is we, we need to make sure that we're not positioning ourselves in opposition to this person, like it's a fight all the time. Mm -hmm. And we need to get to a place where, okay, I'm going to take the responsibility to understand this person and to try to take the first steps towards this person. The position that they're in, they are much more influential. And so that's fine. How can I then show um, willingness and non-threatening um, ways of doing this is usually questioning and asking them what would suit them. Mm. So that's why I would say the uh, uh, beautiful questions. And the second thing is established not in one time, one conversation where everything's laid on the table. It's going to be multiple conversations where you, you build up. So let's say in one conversation, it's got a small question which establishes that this is a possibility. In the second conversation, it's a bigger question that establishes more of the first. And so it doesn't come out of left field. A lot of founders are people that are, um, they want influence and they want strength because they normally perceive weakness within themselves and within things. So it depends on how their behavior manifests. You know, that's a lot more specific, but surprising someone out of left field usually makes them feel vulnerable. Like you've somehow lured them into a trap. It's and a we want to response. Yeah. 100%. And so as best as we can to avoid that by establishing, this is how I ask questions and I will, I will work with your response to try to serve your purposes, your needs. And I think this goes back to the, the other question that was asked as well, right. which is how do I see, how do I position myself as non-threatening and assisting as well? So I think the framework of beautiful questions and the second part, which is, you know, a founder can only handle so much impact at one time. So you have to scaffold mm -hmm. your expectations. Scaffolding is a principle in education whereby, you know, you don't, you, this is my father used to say, you can't, you can't shove a whole bro, uh, loaf of bread in your mouth and expect to swallow it in one gulp. Mm -hmm. it, it takes, it takes slice by slice type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, so knowing how to scaffold uh, the most meaningful or the most actionable points at that given time and then build on it, I guess is what you're saying. 100%. 100%. That that would work, I think, if you're already on staff. But, you know, I came out of recruiting and I, I one of my strengths was being sort of the caddy on the on the on the link, so to speak, to say, OK, let's look down that fairway and what what I see. So if for for somebody getting recruited into a startup who's probably pre a round where things are messy, <laughs> but the technology, the, the mission, the technology, whatever it looks dazzling and that person, you know, maybe they're a hunter gatherer and they say, you know what, I know how to, I know how to pre-sale and sell this. Now becomes the question, um, can I work with the founder? And so that becomes a little different because you may not be able to be as direct, so to speak with a prospective employer, but on the other hand, 
you got to find out whether or not you are compatible with that person, because in stressful situations, we often bring out the worst in ourselves. We're not even aware of what kind of cues we put out. Impatience, um, uh, obstruction, Mm -hmm. uh, defiance, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts of the person who is is not in Dina's position, but, you know, says, you know, I love I love startup companies. It just it's I love the roller coaster aspect of it. I just can do without the toxic work relationships. And how Mm -hmm. do I ferret out somebody who's who's actually self-aware and informed enough that I could actually, you know, they're not like me, but I can work with them well. And I and I and I, I will respect working with them. What are your thoughts? There's a there's a model that I use for this type of thing, which is usually got to do with um, harmonizing self-care in multiple ways. Mm. And, um, you know, the startup space is usually high pressure. Everybody wears different hats, multiple hats at a time. And it's a very fluid situation. And so it, it definitely suits people like that. And like you say, stress usually is going to show you what a person's baseline response is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the very simple point is saying, when people are stressed, which in a startup situation is going to be frequently, um, how do they work and what triggers me? What triggers me? So mm-hmm. what are the different responses that you've seen to stress that you do, you do not respond well to? So one of them is when people tell me what to do, I am such an anti-conformist. I will go against them. And, and it's, it's taken me 20 years to kind of temper this this urge, this stress response where, uh, you know, because I, I was it pushed around so much when I was younger mm-hmm. that now like training martial arts and, and doing all this um, was just a way for me to feel powerful, to push back against them. And now recognizing that, like, don't worry, someone pushing me around is not about me, it's about them. This type of thing, this tempering of yourself and knowledge of yourself, knowing I, I, these situations will bring out these stress responses mm-hmm. and how well do I work with them? So a good way to test this out is to ask people what their self-care looks like. Like, what do you do to relax? How frequently do you relax? Or what do you do, you know, to calm down the stress as a team? So it's usually within startups, it's about relieving pressure. What does the team do to release pressure? What does the leader do to release pressure? Do you have to add a situational dynamic on top of that for the question? Because it, I guess my fear would be would that question might sound a little woo-woo. Do you have to say, so founder, um, I know most founders are really hyper-focused on getting the market at the same time the CFO is yelling in their ear about burn rate. And, you know, and now rip from the headlines, people are now worried about their banking relationships. So money's a factor. They may not be able to hire when they want to or when they do. They may bring somebody on board and say, you know what, your job changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you tee up the I must understand your head first before I accept your job in a way that is most relevant to their day to day existence? And I'm when I mean there, I mean the founder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the simple question is. Um, or to get to a most beautiful question, it's really asking them what do they value and what do they prioritize? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you could get there um, through multiple questions by asking them, um, what does lunchtime look like? 
do, do people eat at their desks or, you know, like, what does it look like? That's interesting. Um, you know, and you could get a lot of insight from questions that don't seem to be very inquisitive or very much like, you know, trying to get to the truth of something. It could be as simple as like, well, how often do we work on weekends? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and the response to that could be like, oh, no, we don't. We will ask for one weekend a month. But, you know, in reality, you might also get something like, well, no, we, we think that weekends are very important for people to have. If we do ask you to come in, we will do this as well. And you can see that there's a hesitation for people to call you in, which shows you their value of respecting privacy and private time as well. Yeah, so that would be... That would be a red flag for a lot of people. Right. Especially given the fact that that one of the things they may be asked to do is hybridize their workplace and, and allow people to work from where any, wherever they want to from time to time or all the time. Although I think probably in a startup culture that gets very difficult. I think probably the zeitgeist is it's really better to have all the creators in the room together. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. I mean, this speaks to as well, people's work preferences, like mm -hmm. heads down time and alone time. Do you, do you, do you actually work better by yourself doing the hard gritty work in the afternoons, in the mornings, or in the evenings when there's no one in the office mm -hmm. and what are the demands of the startup as well? And so knowing your work preferences and the ratio of teamwork to heads down work that you can do as well. So it, it always comes back down to knowledge of yourself. Mm -hmm. And do you know your own uh, preferences to determine your work fit? You know, do you know um, how many times a week do you really want to go into the office? For me, hell looks like me going to the same place every day, five days a week for the rest of my life. Literally not shifting location or not dealing with challenges that test me and test my mettle. You know, that's something that I can determine in multiple careers, but there's a lot of careers that going into the same office every day is a requirement and that would absolutely kill me. So if your listeners want, um, you know, to dive into this, there's a great book called What Color Is My Parachute? Ah, the classic. Amazing. And, and that one determined it, it. I mean, it definitely, if you're not, if you're not aware of these types of connections, it definitely makes you aware of uh, good work fits and which types of people you enjoy working with, what energizes you, what feeds you versus just asking what pays the bills. And I think it's worth asking the question of, are you in a place where you just need a job or are you in a place where you can start to specialize and find a job that's really fulfilling as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and therein the, I, I think the question that I, I would imagine a lot of people are going to ask about situations is, um, to try to find out, is this founder going to be the type of person who will slowly start micromanaging me and calling me on the weekends when I'm at my kid's baseball game mm -hmm. or a family event mm -hmm. or something, you know, going out to dinner with my spouse and the phone rings and right. you feel compelled to take it. Um, and I know a lot of people want to avoid that. And, and, and oftentimes, as you said, why are you taking this job? Because you need the cash flow. Or mm -hmm. because you want the opportunity. And that's something that we all have to figure out before we even get on the phone or the Zoom or face to face with that founder. 100%. I think, you know, there's, um, so, you know, I did a lot of uh, coaching with uh, this one leader um, mm -hmm. inside healthcare. Mm -hmm. And the, the compulsion to answer every question as a leader to, to, you know, she was getting messaged at 11 o'clock at night. And sitting there in bed, texting back this person, messaging them. Why? 
why would you establish this routine as well? Now, it's a little bit more like compelling the other way around. If your boss is texting you at 11 o'clock at night, you might feel more of a compulsion to answer. However, establishing a pattern of, I don't answer my phone here, 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 and, and that's okay. And so doing it once, and maybe there's a reprimand, but then it's the opportunity for a conversation, a very transparent, concise communication of, do you want me to be available during my dinner times? In which case, you know, what, what is fair in this regard? Like how much, what are the expectations of me rather than me imagining what your expectations are? So I think that it's good to test limits like this. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, not big limits at a, at a time, but let's just say um, I'm at home and someone starts calling me and it's seven o'clock at night. I leave it. I let it go to voicemail. I check it, make sure it's not an emergency, but then I don't respond until the next morning. And if there's a question around it, just be like, well, I, I was at home. You know, what are the expectations about me answering things at home? What are the expect? I was busy. Because a lot of people, they don't actually have, let's say, serious dedications outside uh, work. They work, they come home, they rest, they work, they come home, especially in startups. You don't necessarily find people who are uh, dedicated family members, those kind of jobs, um, those kind of people aren't attracted to you know, the turmoil of startups. Right. But if they are there, establishing those boundaries, healthy boundaries and limitations, very important. And I feel that most people today, especially in the workplace, don't know how to establish these correctly or respectfully. And that's, that's a big thing. Justin Nape, we've run out of time. And now comes my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you, what's your work fit? <laughs> what attribute, condition, experience, place, or state of mind makes work a part of your day doing many meaningful things and not just your day? What's your work fit, Justin? Uh, my work fit is impacting a range of people. And the way that I love to impact them is to be a sommelier of perspectives. So we can go from anger, frustration, tantrums, and an hour later, there's opportunity, there's collaboration, there's excitement, they're writing down notes furiously. And um, that is my absolute work fit. And I don't care what that looks like, who I'm working with, it's really perspective shift. That's it. A sommelier. I, I mangled that, but I, I know what that is. And that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Before we depart, I'm wondering if you could share with our viewers um, the name of your company, but also where they can find you on social media and engage with you. Absolutely. Um, so the easiest place is anywhere. Um, because every, every place on social media that people can find me will lead them all to a Substack, And that Substack mm-hmm. is a place where I create content and I try and engage with my, you know, my community as well. But people can just find me at uh, LinkedIn in the links below the show as well, or uh, my website, justinnope.com. And that's uh, N-O-P-P-E. That's After correct. Justin.com. That's right. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute thrill. I hope we can get you back on at a future point to uh, extend this conversation. Absolutely, Dan. And, and let me just say again, um, for everybody, like it's been very inspiring to have the, you know, these conversations with you off, yeah. off the podcast and, and off the recording. And, and so yeah. like, I really thank you for creating the space, number one, and being an inspiration to people, number two. 
I am honored by that. Thank you so much, sir. Have a great day. <laughs> Thank you. You too.